Welcome to Reinventing Home, a podcast about home as sanctuary. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and today we're going to talk about a thorny but critical topic, the prospect of growing old at home. In this podcast, we'll consider the nuts and bolts of caregiving, but also the importance of directing your own story in the last years of your life. Our guide to this discussion is Peggy Flynn, founder of the Good Death Institute and author of The Caregiving Zone, an indispensable book for families. Peggy is also a spiritual director specializing in opportunities for growth in the evening of life. I know of no one better to lead us through this topic with grace and good humor. Peg, thanks for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. How much time do we have for the endless topic? (laughs) Well, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of your work around home. And, you know, one of the things I hear, you know, most often is I want to stay home. It's called aging in place. People will say things like, you know, they're going to carry me out of your feet first. And then... I don't want to go to a nursing home. And the fact is that for many people, nursing homes are not an option. Number one, they're very expensive. And number two, more and more are going out of business. So people will be aging at home. They will be aging at home and they will be dying at home. Home becomes then, as we age, it becomes an independent living place. It becomes then assisted living. It then becomes the nursing home. And then eventually it becomes the hospice. Because that's the trajectory of aging, which is needing more and more services until the very end. This fits really well with our current issue, uh, which is about the life cycle as a home. But before we get into this, I want to ask, Peg, how did you come to this work? Well, it wasn't something I put in my high school yearbook. It's been mostly people coming to me or finding myself with friends and neighbors and family where the situation was upon us and it was really necessary to get some training and some skills. And then as I got training, then was able to be a better and better neighbor. Well, you speak in the caregiving zone about your father showing up on your doorstep. And that sounds like, um, you know, what we call boot camp training in the topic. I'm the oldest girl in an Irish family, right? So I knew that whichever one of my parents went first, I would get the other one. So I, w- I had worked it out years before it happened and went through the, I went through a whole process around, around caregiving, around royalty, et cetera, et cetera, so that when the situation manifested and peak head surgery called me from cover rooms after an oper- operation, I'd been there, how he remembered my phone number. Uh, I have no idea, but he called me from recovery and said, you know, I can't go through this by myself. But the good thing was, because I knew what was going to be coming down the pike, I had prepared. So I was able to work with him. It was supposed to be six months. It ended up being three and a half years. So boot camp lasted a long time. What I love about your book is, is that you really give us a sense of what the territory ahead is going to look like. And, the, you know, one of the things we have to contend with are all the great unknowns. You know, what is supposed to be six months turned out to be three and a half years. Yeah, it, the many unknowns, but also the, but also the knowns. And, and what I found working with families was that most of the trouble came because people weren't looking at that. For example, the finances. You know, they were having this plan that was, you know, kind of like a Cadillac plan. 
but there was only enough money for a Volkswagen plant. You know, so how to tell the truth about that right from the get-go. This is like when people say, well, I don't want to go to a nursing home. You know, I'm like, you can't afford a nursing home, so take that off the table. Let's get all that emotion out of the discussion. There, we've, got to, we've got to deal with, with what we, the resources that we have. So, so facing facts, is, that's a big thing. And, and um, families, many, families are often, you know, facts-free zones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They it, run on a gasoline of emotion. Well, emotion, but also distortion and and wishes and wannabes and if only. So I think one of the first things is facing facts, and and again, it comes back to talking about your home. What are the facts at home? And then, real simple, basic things: stairs, throw rugs, have the doorways wide enough. The caregiving zone is fraught emotionally. You and I have talked about this before. Siblings often argue over who's more worthy to take care of mom or dad. And older people themselves begin to wonder, how am I going to plan for my own aging when I'm really terrified and I can't even approach the subject comfortably? So getting out of emotion and doing something really concrete is a real relief for people if you can just get them there. Literally, if you can get them there. I mean, there's so much in families that is unresolved, that when all of a sudden there is a fact that cannot be ignored. I mean, we're all good. We're all, we're all experts at ignoring reality. But then when some realities present themselves that cannot be ignored, then often, you know, what Rita Mae Brown used to describe as, you know, humans are volcanoes spewing emotional debris through a rational crust. So all that debris can, can come to the surface. And so one of the things I recommend for people is, is bring in an outsider who is not part of the family drama to, to be the presenter of the facts and keep presenting the facts. Applying Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, food, shelter, clothing, social, intellectual, heart, creativity, spiritual, uh, to really looking at what are the facts around those realities as present in this particular home? And so one of the things is, is how to bring it from the, the general or the, you know, whatever to the specifics of this particular address in this particular town, this particular street, because this is where it's going to happen. The more I work in this, the where of things is, is really important. Let's consider this model and talk about the role of, of every room in this hierarchy of needs. I know you've given a lot of thought to this. Where do you begin? Where I begin, I begin with the bathroom. That's where hygiene takes place. That's where bowel function takes place. Is the bathroom safe? Is the bathroom adequate? The real specifics, raised toilet seat, grab bars, do you have those things in the bathtub that prevent slippage. The bathroom doesn't work if the bathroom is not adequate. Or if, for example, somebody had lives in a two-story home and the real bathroom is up on the second floor and they can't navigate stairs, then, then that's an issue. So that becomes the first thing to be thinking about. The second thing I think about is the kitchen. You know, is the, is the kitchen, does everything in the kitchen work? Is everything accessible as in reaching 
the freezer big enough to hold enough meals that someone wouldn't have to cook, you know, if they weren't able to. So food, shelter, clothing, bathroom, kitchen, bedroom. And what about the bedroom? What what do you look for to be changed or converted or made more comfortable there? Okay, well, the bedroom so the bedroom is really interesting because it's associated with so many different things. And this gets to the whole thing of, you know, moving along the continuum of care in terms of equipment. For a long time, you, whatever your bed is, you know, single, double, whatever your bed is, could probably be fine. But as your as a person's needs for care increase, you know, they may need to bring in a hospital bed, for example. Uh, or it may be that a person, the bedroom is dark, bedroom is off the, I mean, it's, it's kind of tucked away. And people will say, you know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be stuck back there. So maybe the living room at that point gets converted into the quote unquote bedroom. That was going to be my next question. What do you do to create a sense of beauty and attractiveness and make sure that the home reflects a client's own personality and interests? I had talked to you before about, you know, a friend of mine who we had a terminal diagnosis and she was really clear she did not want to die, did not want to be sick and have her last month, it would end up being six weeks, back in her bedroom and she wanted to be in the living room, it's a beautiful craftsman house in the living room. And so after we got the diagnosis, we went from the hospital where we had gotten the final word to the furniture store because the sofa that she had there was inadequate. So we went and bought a new sofa. People could visit her and she actually died on that sofa. And shopping for it was a joyful experience. We had fun. We had fun because she was, she was a fiber arts person, so she had a sense of texture. She knew what she wanted. She, she really got into the idea that this was going to be a stage set. This was her theater. There's a lot about aging and the whole process that is, that is theater in the, in the classic sense of the word. It's a, it's a drama. So when you have a drama, you think stage set, you think costumes, you think uh, props. And the props, in, in this case, she did not want a hospital bed. She did not want uh, anything that looked like, you know, medical. Uh, eventually, she did need oxygen. But we, we, <laughs> we found a sofa with a high enough back that all of the oxygen equipment could be behind the sofa. So when you walked into the living room, she was there on her sofa. And she, was, could hold, she could hold court from there without looking compromised. This was how she'd lived her life, and she wanted to have this be how her, her last six weeks would be. And, and so we, you know, I helped her set it up so that basically her home never became a medical unit. That's beautiful. Well, it, it was. I keep coming back to that, that whole idea that death is a drama. Illness, aging, dying, it's all drama. So if you embrace it that way, then you can play with it because you're, you're dealing with the facts of it, but then you take the facts and then you make something out of it for yourself, make a story out of it. That's a beautiful example for our listeners who are in the third age or in the evening of life and are thinking about how they want to 
do things from now on. And the the whole notion, I know you've been working with it for a long time, is what is this last phase of life going to be about and how can I make it creative and communal and still feel like I'm a part of it until that moment when I'm not? Right, but the, the only way you could do it is if you t- say that this is what's happening. It's also really important to know, you know, what are your values? Like for me, for example, personally, you know, I am a fairly solitary person. And the worst thing for me to imagine would be that I would have all these people coming and going. This would not be my idea of a good time, you know. <laughs> This would not be in sync with how I live my life. Other people who are very social, that would be very appealing to them. So it's one of those things to say, well, what do I like? What do I, how do I live my life? But the best thing you can do is do it when you're well. Do it when you're in pretty good shape. See how other people have, you know, say, okay, how would I want that for myself? And then begin to talk to people about what you would you know, how you would want to do it. I had one person I worked with where he was really clear. He loved the composer handle. So my basic job in his last couple of weeks was DJ. I set it up. So we, we had handle on when he was awake, we were playing handle. <laughs> so I DJ handle. Uh, some other people came in and said, you know, no, I don't like that. Could we put something on? I'm like, no, this is what he wanted. And that was my job was to make sure that he, even as he slipped into coma, he got what he wanted. You know, so that's I, lovely. That's I lovely. Handle. <laughs> <laughs> you probably heard more oratorios than you've heard in your whole life. Yeah. Um, and another person who was into Patsy Klein. We we're not going to go there. Okay. <laughs> What I, well, I love about what you do, Peg, is that you look at illness and aging from a really broad internal perspective, and you find out what excites people, what excites your clients, and then you can lead them or help them to construct this next stage of the journey. So I'm wondering if you have any other stories about people doing this transition creatively. I would also talk about the dark side of this, what people when it's denial, 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 and there's no plan, then that's where everybody gets exhausted. When no one will admit what's happening or are afraid to admit, admit what's happening, one of the first casualties is good care for the, for the person who's ill. Sometimes the best person for home care, care for the dying at home, is going to be a hospice service. You have access to a nurse. You have access to home health, trained home health people, et cetera. So postponing dealing with it means that for the, that time that you're getting sicker and sicker, the people taking care of you are, are not trained. You know, they're, you know they're, I've known people who basically died of cancer taking Tylenol because there was no pain med expert on the staff or no, there was no one there that could that could write that kind of prescription. And uh, so, you know, so the denial, I mean, this it can have really serious consequences. Uh, I've seen caregivers get injured because they're trying to change a person laying in a bed or getting them out of the bed or whatever when, you know, what they needed was a hospital bed. What they needed was to learn how to, was 
to be able to have a commode in the room. So there's real can be real negative consequences to denial for both the person in care, but also the people around them. And a lot of that can be avoided. So that's the dark side. I mean, I think the positive things I've seen have been where everybody sat down and said, this is what's happening. Well, let's talk about how we've dealt with death in the past. Uh, for a while, Peg, I lived in an old stone farmhouse in the Hudson Valley that dated back to 1790. It had a dying room on the first floor and a front door large enough to get a casket in. In those days, the wake was usually held in the dining room, and illness, death, and dying were a part of daily life. So I'm wondering, are we headed back in that direction, and do we need to somehow re-educate ourselves? I think we are heading back in that direction, tragically in many ways, because there isn't, there isn't an extended family to support the process. And that's going to be the challenge. When that house you're describing, probably most of the family lived within 10 miles. So a family that was, there was an extended group that was supporting the person who was ill, aging and dying, and three or four core people that were doing most of the care. But yeah, I think it's it's a very it's a very rude awakening for many people to all of a sudden realize, oh, it's going to happen here. Oh, there is no nursing home I can afford. Oh, when they say hospice, they're saying someone's going to come to your home. And that by the way is, you know, basically twelve hours a week. And what kind of stress does that mean for caregivers today? Sometimes you can't take it on. I mean, it's this is what I mean by telling the truth. I mean, and the, the, the term for it now is the squeeze generation, where it's women who's you know they've got parents in their 80s and and 90s, and then they've got you know growing children and they're working. Then okay, and now can I take on? It, it sounds very quote unquote Norman Rockwell or the Waltons to say, okay, Dad, you can move in with us. We've got the room. People don't, you know, often don't, they, how, how could they know what kind of time it takes to provide personal care, to provide, you know, regular meals for someone who is increasingly dependent? And so what can look like generosity can really uh, blow up in a person's, in the family's face. It's very hard to say no. It's very hard to say no. Like with my dad, I was really clear. I knew he and I could not live together. So I got him an apartment in the same building I was living in. In some ways, the dying part is the easy part. That last six weeks, you can do on adrenaline. You know, the last few months, you can do that on adrenaline. You know that. I know that. But it's the years preceding that of increasing dependence. But you can't do that on adrenaline. That's a marathon. And that's that means negotiating at every every point that the situation of decline shifts to a new a new low. So I'll give you an example. Okay, so when it's time to stop driving, when stairs are no longer a possibility, when the person can no longer cook for themselves, you know, when there's cognitive decline creates a not safe space. How do you check in on all those marker events and change the care plan accordingly? And and if in the best of situations, 
you can negotiate all that. But that means you're working with somebody who will negotiate with you in good faith. Often with between parents and children, that is not there. So that's a part of the stress. I mean, when dad says, I can still drive, I'm fine, or there's nothing wrong with my memory, you forgot to tell me that, or I don't need hearing aids if you just would stop mumbling. Those are the kinds of things that I think our generation is going to be coming up against. But better to have those conversations when everybody's well. It's a lot of us that will be doing peer caregiving, where we're going to be taking care of our friends and who are our own age. And so that's a whole different negotiation structure. Easier in some ways and harder in others. I totally agree. Uh, My women's group has made a pact that we will tell each other when we are starting to repeat ourselves, uh, when our memory starts to slip, and that we will basically be conscious observers of one another's aging process and give real honest feedback to one another. I don't think there's any substitute for forming that kind of group and forming it early on. But it's, it's also learning how, to, learning how to receive care, learning how to accept care. That's, a, that's also like, that's this whole skill set. I mean, speaking as a caregiver, I'm good at giving care. You know, I'd give myself an A. But in receiving care, I'd give myself a C. It's a challenge to receive. It's a challenge to be dependent. So what I say to people is practice being dependent before you're dependent. I have a friend whose mother is in a very good nursing home, and she went through a bumpy time, and now she has settled into a place where she just continually thanks her caregivers. She has found a place of total gratitude, and everybody loves to be with this woman because she just says, thank you so much for taking such good care of me. If it comes from an authentic place, then everyone is blessed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you're describing. You can start that today. You know, like being grateful to the store clerk. You know, I just had an experience. I was taking the bus over to a meeting, and the bus was coming, and it was the stop was like three-quarters of a block away. And it's our first, one of our first cold days. Say The windshield factor was 21 degrees. And I waved to the bus, kind of like, you know, wait for me. And she pulled up right there. I thanked her, you know, very, very much because otherwise I would be standing there for like 10 minutes or so in 21 degree temperature with the wind coming off Lake Michigan. I think that that whole thing of living in gratitude gives resilience. It's like brake pads on your car. You know, when the brake pads go, every time you press the brake, you get that squealing noise. And so part of the thing around gratitude, accepting reality, this, what this does is it just, it just creates brake pads. It just creates resilience so that as these things happen that are hard, really hard, you at least have some way to cushion the blow and to say, okay, I can adapt. I remember years and years ago, I was in college and I was earning money on the side by doing home care. And I was out in the country in, San, in the South Bay, Santa Cruz, California. And I would drive to these different places. And there was a stretch of road. It probably was like four miles. And I had four clients, all elderly women, living alone in their houses. And I was often 
the only person they saw from one end of the week to the next. So, of course, they would be like just holding on, literally holding on, you know. Their loneliness was like, it it was palpable. It was like a, a second person in the room, their loneliness. One of the women who was more approachable, I said to her, all of you on this road, what if you moved in together? And every one of them said exactly the same thing, these three women. I cannot have another woman in my kitchen. I looked at how I live and I thought, boy, that's me too. And I thought, okay, Peg, from now on, women are totally invited into the kitchen. (laughs) And it shifted from my kitchen to the kitchen. (laughs) And so that's what I mean about, about like really expanding the boundaries, you know, looking at resistances and saying, okay, I need to change. I I love what you're saying right now because you're you're bringing me to this whole notion of when we come into the evening of life with the right attitude, there are gifts. And if we just move beyond what we call the organ recital and the big focus on our frailties to a place of gratitude for what we still are having in our lives and still are able to do, then it shifts, doesn't it? Well, yeah, we need other people. So it's, it's our job to make it be easier for people to be around us. That's, that's really important. And I think the, the willingness to be pleased. I had a client once. She was in her 90s. She was in cognitive decline. Her daughter had a hard time being at the hospital with her for a lot of reasons. I mean, mostly because she just loved her mother so much it just tore her up inside um, to, to see her mother like that. And so... We had a, a, an agreement I, that if, she, if if Alma went to the hospital, I would go with her. So at this point, I'm you know I'm, I'm at the hospital and the doctor comes in and and uh, says to Alma now um, he, he said to me now who are you and I said I'm a friend of the family and friend of Alma's and he said now Alma is it okay that she's here? Do you know who this is? And Alma looked at him blue eyes and she looked at him and she said. I don't know who she is anymore, but every time I need her, she comes. But we built that relationship over years, you know, and every time she needed me, I came. There was a bond, even though in, in terms of cognition, she didn't know who I was anymore. I want to come back to this thing around home. We are creatures of home. Home is, home is everything. What are the five basic elements that make home home for me? It's not the same for everybody. And and then be able to communicate that and say, you know, these this is what home is for me. Home is these five things. Then it makes it easy, especially if you have to move, to to create an environment where those five things are present. It really gets back to the heart of the matter of um, what is home for each one of us. It is so individual. It is so different. And... How can we always have that sense of home no matter where we are and what age we are? And no matter what the level of cognitive presence or absence. When I was training home health workers, I was working with this agency. And one of the things we, we learned was that, oh, if the caregivers brought their food, okay, which might be very different from the food that the person in care was accustomed to having around, then the person would say, well, this isn't my house. 
Aww. Because it doesn't smell like your house. And and that sense of smell is the oldest sense for a mammal because why? When the child, when the little baby mammal is born, it's got to find the nipple, right? It's got to find the milk. So it will, it will, that's, that's one of the, that's the oldest sense. The only sense we're born with that's fully formed. So one of the things is like, for example, okay, we'd say, okay, keep frozen apple pies in the, in the freezer. And if the person gets agitated, put a pie in the oven and the house will fill with that scent. Oh, that's beautiful, Peg. Yeah, which will, which will immediately the person, because when someone says, this isn't my home, they're telling you something. It, it doesn't smell like my home. It, you know, that's not my music. When I was doing end-stage care, and sometimes I would just be meeting a person the last few days of their life, and maybe they could communicate, and maybe they couldn't. One of the things was to look in their kitchen and also look in their bookcase and look at their music collection. And that would tell me a lot about the person and what was home for them so that I would not bring something in that wouldn't fit. So one of the things is what are those five things that are home for you? And then tell people, tell people. For me, if I lose my marbles, here's my music. Here's what I like to eat. Here's what will just be very agitating for me, very, very disruptive. And here's what will comfort me. One psychologist I work with uses the expression, you know, that equanimity is in direct proportion to our ability to self-comfort. Well, equanimity is in the aging process in direct proportion to others' ability to comfort us. But we need to tell them. One time I went to this person's house to, to do a massage, and the guy met me at the door, and he was just, just in a state. He was totally freaked out and almost in tears. And, you know, for a man to get to that place, that's, that's pretty major. And I said, what's the matter? He said, my worst nightmare was that I would get sick and lose my mind. I'm losing my mind. I cannot find anything. And I think I put something someplace and then it's not there. It's a whole litany, right? And I said, okay, first of all, I know you, you're not losing your mind. Something else is going on here. And I looked at it and I said, tell me, are you on any new meds? I said, no, no, no. So I said, well, walk me through your house. So he, he walked me through. And he said, see, I, I didn't put any, I didn't move this. I did. Well, it turned out that he'd had like four different home care people come in. A couple of them volunteers. People loved him. But everybody would do the laundry, do the dishes, go to the store. And then they would put things back where they would normally put things. Every time somebody came in, they folded the clothes the way they fold the clothes. They, they put the groceries where they would have put the groceries. So I said, let's go through and fix your apartment, your cabinets. Let's get them the way you want them. Let's fold the towels. So we refolded everything, put everything the way he had had it to begin with. And then I put notes on every cabinet and said, please do it exactly this way. To preserve our sense of home is to preserve our sanity. To bring it, but also, we all, we all have our accustomed ways. And that's an old-fashioned term that I love. But part of it, so really caring for another person is go into their place and, and see how they do things. Now, you would, I mean, I know that the way I fold towels is the best way. In fact, everyone should fold towels the way I fold towels. 
But we have to expand our awareness to like get a little bit more flexible, fold towels, fold t-shirts, the way the person is accustomed to having it done. At home is an event. Again, I come back to the thing around drama and theater and stage is if, uh, if we look at the person who's, who we're trying to care for, if we look at them as the director, producer, director, then we are going to take that direction. But if I come in there and it's like, I'm here to save you, or I'm here to, you know, show you the error of your ways or whatever, then I'm not going to take direction. Do you know what I'm saying? It, I know exactly what you're saying. If, if you come in and take charge, you're running your own hero's journey, and it has nothing to do with the person who's looking for home and sanctuary. Exactly. Because caregiving is not a hero's journey. It's not. It really isn't. The hero's journey is the person who's dealing with third, third of life issues. That's their hero's journey. So are you here to support them on their hero's journey? Or are you there to usurp it? Have your own drama. Consciousness has nothing to do with cognition. Those are two different things. That's why the story about Alma is so important. Her cognition was shot, but her conscious awareness was flourishing. That's a beautiful distinction, Peg. Yeah, and it's a really crucial one because we're so intellectually, you know, we're so in the, we're so in the, in the left brain. We're so in that hyper-rationality that we tend to just kind of neglect or actually, or even despise every other form of conscious awareness. Cognition, yeah, it's really, it is important. I mean, you got to, people have to be safe, but there's so many ways to play with it and have very truthful encounters. But again, and I keep coming back to this is there's home in your body, there's home in your environment, there's home in your relationship network. It's one of the reasons I admire your work so much because the thing around home, that's like bedrock. And it's, I don't think, and it's not just humans, it's living creatures. You know, just think of a beehive, right? We have a thousand other words to use when we describe home for other species and then the environment. And uh, we need to get back to this basic understanding of our home today. I, I thank you so much for this explanation of why this is so important in the aging process. This is, this is rich, beautiful, poetic, creative, and at the same time, really down to earth. Good. I want to encourage our listeners to go to your website in the evening of life and learn more about your really important work and how to create a loving space for ourselves and our family members in the, in the third stage of life. What you're doing is so important, and I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing your work with us today. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. In this whole conversation, if you'll notice, we did not talk about money. Everything we were talking about can be accomplished. It has nothing to do with money. It's about relationships and paying attention and caring. Isn't that amazing? That's a wonderful coda. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you so much, Peg. This was a beautiful talk today. Thank you.